Hey there, welcome to Actual Ag. I'm your host, Samantha Bennett, and this podcast is dedicated to answering your questions about agriculture. Not only are those questions answered by me, a graduate student studying these topics in school, but also by specialists that work directly with these topics. So if you want to know if purchasing organic is the way to go, if animal rights are actually important to farmers, or if GMOs are actually bad for you, welcome, you've come to the right place. Hello everyone and welcome back to Actual Ag. Today I'm thrilled to have with us Dr. Selena Bruckner, a recent um, PhD graduate now doing her postdoc here at Auburn University with our Department of Entomology. Um, she is currently doing research at our B lab, which I'll let her talk a little bit more later on because it's really interesting the work that they do there. Um, but hello Selena, welcome. Hey, how are you doing? <laughs> Great, thank you for coming on today. I'm thrilled to have someone um, that's still in the world of agriculture, but a little bit outside of what I typically talk about on the show. We're talking about the bee population today, which is really cool and exciting and um, obviously something you're very passionate about. So Selena, before we get too deep into anything, um, I'm going to give you the opportunity to tell us a little bit about your background, um, where you're from, what you've previously studied, and how you ended up here at Auburn University. All right. Well, most of you will probably notice my um, little accent, so I'm not from here. Um, I'm originally from Switzerland, where I did my um, undergrad and also my master's degree in biology, technically, but I was um, working with honeybees, basically, for my entire academic career, in quotes. Um, so I'm like an old bee and not a, a new bee. Um, <laughs> and how I ended up in Auburn is um, pretty... I guess like um, boring, so to speak. But I, whenever I finished my master's, my supervisor actually got a job here, um, basically establishing a new B lab. And he um, gave me the opportunity to continue with my PhD and like moving over here um, to work, to continue my work with honeybees, um, which was interesting to be in a different um, department all of a sudden, entomology. Um, but it was really, cool because I was able to take um, classes during my PhD. I wasn't really an insect passionate person before, <laughs> but I did learn so much about the amazing world of insects and how much diversity there is and how cool they are. Um, although bees are for sure still the coolest insect, um, but <laughs> there are many more out there. <laughs> Not biased at all or anything. <laughs> so. No. <laughs> well, that's cool. I didn't realize that it was your your professor that you had worked with previously that came over and started our B lab here. That that's amazing. Um, yeah. So when did you you said you worked with bees all throughout even your your bachelor's and everything? So when did you decide that you kind of wanted to work, you know, in the world of entomology and specifically focus on bees? Um. So. In Switzerland, we actually have to do an undergrad thesis as well. So I had to like consider or like decide pretty early on, um, like what I would like to do research-wise. Although you can always change your direction, I guess. But I just always wanted to do something that kind of benefits the the environment and like I can interact with with people as well, with stakeholders, um, as well as like the animals. And honeybees are just like a perfect kind of study organism for that because they um do a lot for our environment um and we also have the opportunity to work closely with beekeepers that actually take care of their bees so that was like a good um kind of 
don't know, intersection. And also the major professor of the Honeybee Lab in Switzerland did a great job in advertising his program. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. I didn't even until I got, you know, to our department here and heard about the B lab. I didn't realize, you know, I think how big of a world of study that, you know, honeybees specifically are. And I think it's amazing the work that you guys are doing. And it's so interesting. So it's cool to hear how you kind of got into it and that sort of thing. I love the connection between, you know, people and the environment and bringing all of those aspects together. So that's great. We're going to get a little bit more into the importance of bees now, which um, you know, I think we're a little more aware now than I think we were in the past um, as a society, but whenever we're thinking about pollinators, like whether it's animals or um, insects, that sort of thing, um, which sort of of the different organisms would you say that bees are more, are more effective and efficient pollinators out of all of them, you know, opposed to like birds, bats, butterflies, moths, that kind of thing? Um, I guess in your opinion, which you, you would know for sure, <laughs> being the bee expert, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I would, I wish I could say, well, yes, honeybees are the most efficient um, pollinator on the world, in the world. But um, I think the truth is like, probably not really, or like it really depends on, on what you're looking at. Because as you mentioned, there are so many other organisms that actually do pollination for plants and um, there are, for for example, there are like some really specialized bees, like the the squash bee, for example, that is only pollinating squash plants, and they oh. do have like extremely specialized body parts to do a great job at what they're doing. So in those specific like plants, honeybees are for sure not the most efficient or effective pollinators. Um, but then honeybees are foraging on a really wide variety of different plants, so they do contribute a little bit to everything, which makes them good pollinators, although they might not be the most efficient. So it really kind of depends on what scale or how specifically um, you look at different plants. So I would say it's like a, a mosaic or kind of a puzzle of like different pollinators that all together play a super important role. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a reason why honeybees are shipped across the country, for example, to do pollination services for various plants like blueberries or almonds because they do a good job at what they're doing they might not be the most efficient though okay interesting see I'm, I'm learning here as we go as well so that's great <laughs> um obviously we talked about our bees they serve an important role as pollinators in our ecosystems but what are some other important roles that bees play that we might not be as familiar with um well I mean one one of the things that everybody that loves honey. Um, I mean, bees are basically um, the ones that produce the honey you buy uh, in the grocery store. So I guess apart from um, like fruits and vegetables that they that we eat because of pollination, I mean, honey production for sure is um, one thing that serves um, like the economy and also us. Um, also like leisure activity. I mean, um, there are many programs, um, for example, 4-H pro programs or um, the veteran programs that are engaging people with beekeeping, beekeeping activities since it's like um, kind of meditative, I guess. Um, it's, it's really like good to be outside and um, just, yeah, human welfare, so to speak. Um, honeybees are also like considered a sentinel species, so they can be used to kind of indicate whether something's wrong with the environment, which is important for like research in general. 
And I guess like one of the things, um, as you said, that we are more aware nowadays is like honeybees are for sure kind of the advocate species. Um, if we think about like, I don't know, um, kind of the more famous um, animal species like lions or something that everybody knows, I think honeybees are kind of the, the equivalent in the insect world. Everybody mm -hmm. likes them, everybody thinks they are cool. So they can be used as an advocate species for like insects in general, I would say, um, which makes them important for sure as well. Awesome. Yeah, th those are great perspectives. I would have never, you know, thought of some of those things, especially um, when it comes to them being like advocate insects. That's, that's such a cool idea. <laughs> so I think in the past five or so years, um, a popular phrase or saying I've seen um, is save the bees. It kind of became almost trendy for a little bit, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think with that awareness or with that phrase came the awareness that our honeybee population really isn't doing as great as it used to be. Um, and you kind of talked about how they can be great indicators of how our environment is doing. Um, but when did we really start to see a decline in our healthy honeybee populations? So there have been like um, huge colony losses historically as well. But I mean, obviously that doesn't necessarily matter for us anymore. Um, but I guess the current kind of um, understanding of colony losses that everybody talks about probably started in winter 2006 and seven. That is when um, a bunch of colonies started collapsing. And that's also where the term um, comes from that we refer to as colony collapse disorder, which is like a buzzword um, as well. Although many scientists um, try to avoid this term since we just don't really know um, the different factors that necessarily cause this um, collapse disorder. Um, but again, it is suggested that there are many um, factors that are causing um, our bee populations to perform less good than they might have um, yeah, a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And I know that just from personal experience, I think I mentioned in emails that my dad used to keep honeybees for a little bit as a hobby. Yeah. Um, I think that he wasn't as well informed as he should have been because we had, I think, a mite infestation occur. Um, so is that kind of one of the reasons that we've seen, like, let's talk about some of those factors that you talked about, like possibly being reasons as to why. So are mites one of those that can kind of lead to the collapse of a hive, that sort of thing? Yeah. So pests or pathogens are for sure like a, a big thing and the mites um, especially that you refer to are they are called varroa mites and they are basically the number one um, threat or kind of uh, problem in the beekeeping industry um, so that's a big thing um, the those mites are originally from asia um, so they didn't like co-evolve with our honeybees which makes them like more susceptible than for example the asian honeybees so that is like for sure a struggle for both beekeepers and bees actually. Um, other factors are um, insecticides or pesticides that are applied to either ag land or even just in our own backyards, right? That we, we are spraying um, as well as like land use change. Like many other animals are affected by um, not having enough food resources um, and yeah. Those are a couple of the, the factors, but mites being the number one for sure. Gotcha. Yeah, my dad should have done obviously way more research if that was the number one contributor, but <laughs> plus, he tried. He enjoyed it while we had them. <laughs> That's good to hear. 
Yeah. I think he's actually thinking about getting back into them. But anyways, that's a subject for another conversation. <laughs> um, so we mentioned that you currently do your work at our Auburn B-Lab. So can you tell me a little bit about the B-Lab and kind of the research that you guys do there? Yeah, so I guess that's a good segue in any case, talking about factors that affect bee health, because we are focusing on bee health mostly. And during my PhD, I was working on a class of um, insecticides that is commonly used in the US ag agriculture, um, neonicotinoids, which is also a buzzword in the bee world. Um, and additionally, we were looking at the varroa mites as well and how those like two stressors kind of interact with each other and potentially affect um, honeybee health. And currently we, we are focusing mostly on the varroa mite just because it's like um, a need that needs to be addressed for beekeepers. As you said with your dad, like there is information out there, but sometimes it's not um, sufficient or it's not region specific. So we are currently trying to um, test a couple of different treatment options, really region specific to give recommendations to beekeepers um, and avoid like kind of the, the risk of the treatments or also address limitations of those treatments. Um, additionally, we also do quite a few actually extension-based um, projects to deliver this information um, to beekeepers in a timely manner so they can actually do something before they have like a huge mite infestation. And so we're really lucky, I guess, that we have also the Alabama extension or Alabama Cooperative Extension system here with like beekeeping um, experts. So we are closely working with them as well, which is really exciting. So yeah, I'm going to have you plug your um, extension work that you guys do, because I actually, once I got into grad school and learned about the B-Lab program and all the work you do with extension, my dad actually attended a few of like the conferences you guys put on for people. Nice. So, so it's definitely been beneficial now that, you know, we've kind of learned as we went and had, you know, resources that we could learn from, from you guys, which has been great. And he, he loved the conferences. So we'll definitely share a link to that um, in the show notes of this episode. Um, but when it comes to your work in the B-Lab, what does a typical day look like for you? Because I'm sure it's very different from what a typical day looks like here in our department. <laughs> yeah, and that's, well, I guess in ag in general, it's kind of the question, is there a typical day of anything? Probably not. <laughs> At least for the B-Lab, it's really not, I don't think we really have typical days, which is never, it's kind of hard to, you know, tell potential undergrad students what they're going to do because it can change like it's so weather dependent as well um, but I guess generally during the winter time um, students try to write up their experiment results um, we just built a bunch of new equipment for upcoming experiments that's because during the winter the bees are pretty much inactive um, they don't really do much although in Alabama winter means like two weeks out of the year <laughs> but um <laughs> So yeah, I guess those are winter activities, mostly like just fixing equipment. And then spring is basically when the beekeeping season starts up. Um, that's when commonly we are trying to um, split big colonies. So we try to like, um, we have one big colony that we try to make like several small ones out of it. So they have more space and we can also increase our operation size. Um, that's also when you would start to look for mites actually. Um, okay. Potentially treat so that they can go into summer fairly healthy and strong because summer is then when they like forage most and collect all the nectar, produce honey. 
Um, so they they should be like um, not too infested with mites. Um, and during summer, we also have mostly of our, most of our experiments. So that's like the busy season for us, for sure. Um, trying to get to um, keep the bees alive and um, do all our treatments and stuff. And then, um, yeah, for the most part, we would like check colonies, look how many bees we have in there, how much brood they produce um, and like measure different health aspects, I guess. And then I guess late summer and fall will be honey harvest, which is always a lot of fun, um, sticky fun, but uh, a lot of <laughs> so stay tuned for our honey sale as well. Um, and fall is then also like, again, a really important um, season for, for mites, for mite treatments, because that's before winter. So ideally you wanna have healthy bees that go into your winter. So it's a lot of, again, colony checks, like estimating how many mites there are and treating like driving from yard to yard. So it's like a lot of outdoors work, a lot of sweat, but also a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it's very rewarding too. It sounds like it would be, you know, not instant gratification, but within a season, like you, you have, you know, the honey at the end, the end product, and then your data for all your research too, it sounds like. So it sounds very for rewarding. Sure. Yeah. And you guys actually sell the honey that you guys harvest from your bees, right? And yeah. So what if, if students that are listening to this from Auburn or even, I guess, I don't know if you guys do online sales or how that works, but um, if they want to get their hands on some Auburn Bee Lab honey, how can they do that? <laughs> um, probably the best thing would be to follow our social media, um, Facebook or Instagram, where it will be um, posted in advance. Um, we are, we did have an online sale like this past fall because of COVID. Generally, we try to have it like in person to engage with like the community as well. But um, yeah, I guess it will be advertised on social media. So everybody should click the follow button right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go check them out on all their social media platforms. Um, so does all of the money that you guys get from the honey sales, does that go back into your research program um, to the B Lab specifically? How does that work? Yeah, um, it is like it is going back to the to the lab um awesome so <laughs> when they buy your honey they're, they're supporting the awesome research that you guys do as well so I love that exactly <laughs> we talked about a lot of the research that you did with insecticide insecticide usage especially those in um used in agricultural you know production that sort of thing uh what do you hope are some of the future impacts that will come out of your research in terms of the future hopefully for our honeybees yeah so with like more focus on on the mites right now, I think I mean our our hope is really that we will be basically that our experiments will be helpful in providing beekeepers with more options to efficiently mm -hmm. feed their colonies um, and to not like lose basically thirty to forty percent of their colonies each winter. Um, since this mite is just such a major cause for colony losses and um, yeah, that we can reduce the losses that we experience in the US. And I guess that's like where it's really cool that we have both experiments to test different treatment options, but then also the educational programs where we can actually deliver um, this information that is like hopefully more timely, like more kind of um, proactive rather than um, rather than already too late. 
and that this information can be disseminated in a way that many people can access it and it's like engaging and informative. So really supporting the stakeholders, the, the beekeepers in, in their struggle and in their great effort um, that they are doing. That's awesome. Um, yeah, that's just another added benefit of being at a land grant university is just that extension aspect. I think, you know, all of us grad students just really are appreciative of that. Um, so yeah, gave for land grant universities. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so when it comes to our listeners that are tuning into this and they're thinking, you know, I kind of want to get involved with saving our bee populations. Um, this is something that interests me. What are some ways that they can get involved like now? Yeah, so I guess like one of the kind of major um, things that is advertised and that many people um, can easy, easily do, I guess, is plant like wildflowers in, in their garden or kind of inform yourself about what what plants, what kind of vegetable plants would be um, attractive for, for honeybees or also like other native bees, which are really important um, and have a garden, plant those things. Um, I guess buying local honey can benefit um, not maybe not necessarily the bees directly, but indirectly because it supports local beekeepers that then can like purchase equipment or treatments that they can use to um, have healthy bees. And um, I mean, there is a club on campus, um, the Auburn for Bees um, club on campus. Um, well, hopefully they will be able to have some fundraisers and events um, again soon. So that's for sure a way to, to support like bee research or the bee lab or people that are trying to do something in the local community for bees. Um, and I guess just being, being a honeybee or bee steward by like um, talking to other people about the importance of, of pollinators and like kind of the risks they face by um, using pesticides or like having um, the perfect English garden without a single flower in there. Um, so yeah, trying to raise awareness that those teeny tiny insects are um, extremely important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love I love the Auburn for the bees. Is that what it's called? The organization? Yeah, yeah they do great work and they do they partner with some of the local elementary schools and stuff too, don't they, to raise awareness? That That's a really cool yeah. program as well for um, any students that may be listening, that's a great way to get involved. I guess as we're wrapping things up here, we kind of talked about a few resources, um, but if people wanted to check out some of the things you talked about, um, what ways can they find you guys on social media? Is it just the Auburn Bee Lab or um, what, what are your guys' pages? Yeah, I think, I mean, we are most active on, on Facebook. Um, our supervisor, Jeff, is doing a great job in like um, posting many, many things, many interesting things we are doing. So, um, and the Facebook name is um, Auburn University Bees. So it's kind of lengthy, but um, I guess still easy, easy to remember. Um, the same goes for Instagram, but I guess like Facebook is really like the main kind of distribution channel we are using also to advertise like information from other universities. For example, for us in the Southeast, University of Florida is a good resource as well. And they do have a huge B college as well, which we are also engaging with each other. So um, I, yeah, I would say definitely Facebook. And then are there any additional uh, resources that you think listeners might find value in, like any bodies of research that you think might interest them or articles, things like that? 
So there is a, a really interesting, um, I guess, uh, page that we are also utilizing a lot, and that's um, from the Honeybee Health Coalition, which also has a lot of like basic information. Um, they do have really interesting information about varroa mites specifically. Um, so that's a really good one. Um, otherwise, again, the, the Florida um, Bee College has a lot of um, kind of beginner beekeeper information as well, which is like soon to come for the Alabama Cooperative Extension um, system as well, which um, there are a few articles as well on this, like on the ACES beekeeping um, webpage that can, can be helpful or in, um, interesting to read. Awesome. Yeah. And I'll, I'll link all those, like I said, in the, the show notes of today's episode. So if you guys want to check them out, you can find them there. But thank you, Selena, for coming on here. I really appreciate it. It's great to hear a little bit more about, you know, our different side of our College of Ag friends, our Department of Entomology. So it's great to hear all the awesome work you guys are doing over at the Bee Lab. Yeah, well, thank you so much for, for having me. It's always great to like um, advocate for bees and talking about them because they are amazing. Um. <laughs> that they are. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you too. That concludes this episode of Actual Ag. Once again, I'm your host, Samantha Bennett, and I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. Before you leave, though, make sure to follow or subscribe to this podcast on whatever listening platform you're listening on. And make sure to follow us on Instagram as well, at actual underscore ag. Stay up to date on what topics we're going to be discussing and to send me your questions on agriculture. Talk to you guys soon. Bye, y'all.